Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Dr. Andy Bannister. He's the director of SOLAS and an adjunct lecturer at Wycliffe College at University of Toronto. Uh, currently, he's in England right now. So we're going to talk about his work and his studies on uh, religion and faith. So, Andy, thank you for coming. It's a pleasure to be with you, uh, Richard. Thank you for inviting me. If you would, tell me a bit about your background first and how you got into the areas of study that you're in. Yes, I'm, un- I'm unusual. I'm a, I'm a Christian philosopher originally, but then I got into my academic area, moved then into, into Quranic studies, Islamic studies. And what caused that was in the late 1990s, I began having quite a lot of dialogues and conversation with Muslim friends sort of finding them asking me questions about my faith that I hadn't really come across before. So that led me to begin studying, you know, Islam in a bit more detail, and then really discovered that a lot of the critical questions around Islamic studies, around the origins of Islam and Muhammad and the Quran, hadn't really been explored. So when it came time to to do a PhD, I thought to myself, well, I suppose I could either spend, you know, six years studying the use of the semicolon in the first chapter of John's Gospel and New Testament or something suitably riveting, or I could do some critical work on the Quran, and I went for the, the latter. So I, I dived into the whole question of how the Quran was first put together, which is an absolutely fascinating kind of area of study. And then since then, that's mm. really continued to be my, my specialty. So I do, um, in my sort of regular work, I do a lot of dialogues and interactions with people of all faiths and none, but, but especially Muslims. They've, they've fascinated me for 20 years now. So what are some, um, you know, along the way, what are some really fascinating things you learned about the origin of the Quran? And- Prophet well, Muhammad think, and all that stuff. Yeah. Well, I think the big one, kind of Richard, the first drew me into this. When I first began speaking with Muslims, one of the arguments they would use to sort of validate the Quran was that, you know, the Quran is an amazing work of, of literature, but Muhammad, the founder of Islam, was, a, was illiterate. He could neither read nor write. And therefore, the Quran was a miracle. How could an illiterate man produce something like this? And I remember when I first heard that, thinking, no, if, that, if those premises stand up, I mean, that's a relatively strong argument to engage with. But then what I discovered, and this was really the sort of rabbit trail I went down, the rabbit hole I went down for my PhD, was actually we have we know of hundreds of, tra- of, of cultures around the world that have bequeathed to us great works of literature, but those who constructed them could neither read nor write. But perhaps the textbook example, the classic example in the field would be Homer, the Greek poet, his great poems, the Iliad and the Odyssey, those founding documents of Western literature. Uh, he was writing, pardon me, well, he was composing before writing. We know he couldn't have been a literate person because writing hadn't been invented, but he produced these amazing poems. How did he do it? And it turns out there are tools and techniques and methods that you can use when you are an oral individual in an oral culture that let you compose at quite at great length. Those have been studied, you know, for hundreds of sort of cultures around the world. What are I, these methods? What do you, what do you mean? 
Yeah, so let me give you a classic example. One of the most common ones we see in lots of oral cultures are what we call formulaic language. So we use uh, oral cultures, oral performers, when they're performing live in front of an audience, they'll take repeat, short, repeated sentences they use again and again and again because it lets you compose at speed. We have echoes of this in our culture. A small child comes to you, I don't know if you've got kids, but if a small child comes to you and says, you know, Richard, can you tell me the story of the three little pigs? You will probably start by saying, once upon a time. That's an old, old mm. formula that we still have. And one of the things you can do when, you te- when you've got a text that you think might come from orality, you can see what percentage of it consists of these short repeated phrases used time and time again. Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, about 25% consists of these short repeated building blocks. The Koran, almost 50%. It's always off the chart, actually. It's one of the most oral formulaic documents we now know. So yeah, formulaic language would be a classic example. And it is all over the Quran, the oral fingerprints of the way it was first put together. Okay. So how do you think that the, the Quran was written and did someone, I mean, did multiple people help Muhammad or what do you thought? What do you think? Yeah. Well, I think now where critical scholarship has arrived at, there's been a number of things we've known for a while about the Quran and we're beginning to put more of the pieces together. For example, it's been known for a long time that the Quran makes very heavy use of former traditions. So 25% of the Quran consists of retellings of biblical stories, not direct quotes, but retellings. So for example, the Quran retells the story of, uh, of Adam and Eve in the garden, for example. It also retells stories from Jewish and Christian uh, tradition outside of the Bible. It retells uh, you know, earlier Arabian religious materials. But we've never been quite sure how that's worked. For a long time, critical, critical scholars suggested that Muhammad copied, but we don't see word for word correspondence. And so that didn't quite work. Well, now we understand the oral component. Now what it looks like was going on was Muhammad, let's say for the sake of example, it is the historical Muhammad, you know, he gets it into his head that uh, that the way you build a nation, and he had a passion for the Arabic people, they were, they were very tribal, they were very scattered there in the seventh century. He got into his head by looking at the cultures around him, that the way that you unify a culture is you use religion. And so he decided he would give the Arab people a religion. And he looks around and Arabia is full of religious traditions. And he starts fishing, as it were, from these other traditions. You know, here's a story that sounds helpful. Here's another piece of tradition that people know. And then he just retells those stories in his preaching and his teaching. And when he dies in 632 AD, the Quran is not written down. There's been no attempt to do that because he dies quite suddenly. And then in the 20 or 30, 40 years after Muhammad, the first Muslim community after Muhammad they undertake the project of collecting all these things that he said and taught and preached and editing them together to form the text that we now know as the Quran. So that's the kind of view from 30,000 feet, Richard. Do you get pushback? Because, I mean, well, a lot of questions here. When, at what point did, uh, was it like where the, you know, the Quran needs to be word for word? Nothing can be changed at all. It's completely inerrant. And yeah. it, again, just frankly, seemed to be less tolerant. When you study this, do you get pushback from Muslims saying that you shouldn't study it or you're getting it wrong? Dare you? Or? Well, actually, you get a whole variety. I mean, I have a lot of friends who are more academic Muslims. There's an organization actually called the uh, International Quran Studies Association that networks together sort of three, four hundred scholars working in the field. The majority of those in that network would be would be Muslim. They wouldn't be Christian like me. They'd be Muslim. Most of them actually are very friendly, very engaged. We, you know, we have the usual academic sort of discussions, agreements, disagreements. What's interesting is most of those recognize that the Quran has, you know, some of these features 
that I've described is more outside of academia when you get to, I suppose, as it, as it were, the Muslim in the street who isn't aware of these conversations, isn't aware that even their own Muslim scholars in Western universities are wrestling with this critical stuff that then sometimes uh, you get pushed back. But even then, actually, you know, people are more open than you realise. I remember a couple of years ago, Richard, I was uh, just before COVID, I was in a taxi cab going to Heathrow Airport. I realized something in the cab that made me realize the, the, the guy driving it was a Muslim. It was Ramadan at the time. So I just made a polite comment. I said, hey, it must be quite tough for you right now. You know, all this hot weather and here you are fasting. He went, oh, you know about Islam. I went, yeah, I studied at PhD level. And he said, what did you study? And I said, well, I studied the Quran. And he said, what, are you, what, were your conclu- what did you discover? And I said, well, my conclusions might not be the same as yours. And I wouldn't want to upset you. And he went, well, you seem very polite kind of guy, Andy. I, I wouldn't be offended. Tell me what you found out. So I shared with you some of what I've just talked to you about, Richard. We went a bit deeper as we're driving. And then at the end, I said, I said, I hope that hasn't like, upset you. It was really interesting. He said, he said, oh, no. He said, you know, I've come across some of these issues myself. He said, I don't think Muslims, we are nearly as good at asking the questions we should do. We need to have more of these kind of conversations. So that, that was interesting. I had several Muslims like that over the years, so when you tell them, you know, that you're almost giving them permission to share their own questions uh, with their traditions. Because as you, I think, alluded to in Islam, it's not generally encouraged to ask critical questions about your, about your sacred text. But I found when you show Muslims you can do that, then yeah, then sometimes, those, sometimes you, get, you get more uh, appreciation than you might otherwise realize. Before we continue... I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. And here's a weird question. What's the difference between Arabs and Muslims? It, I, I, I feel like the, the two terms are used interchangeably and they shouldn't be. They absolutely shouldn't be. Um, not least I know I have many Arab Christian friends who would be very upset if we suggested that all of them were uh, were Muslims. So, yeah, so the Arabs are obviously the, the people group who originally inhabited a, a, Arabia and are now, you know, sort of spread out. There's an Arabic diaspora and you're, you know, in, in North America, you have many Arabs. We have many uh, in the UK. Now, the majority of those now in terms of their faith would probably be Muslim. But then you would have secular Arabs and Christian Arabs and Jewish Arabs. You know, it's actually quite a wide variety. So the Arab is, Arab is the race, and then Muslim or Islam is the faith. And I agree, sometimes we use those terms un, unhelpfully, interchangeably. I mean, what is interesting is that Islam remains at its heart a very Arabic-orientated faith, although it's now a world faith. Still, the fact of the matter is, if you want to become a Muslim, you know, you have to read the Quran, ideally in Arabic. You suddenly pray in Arabic, even if you don't understand the words. You pray facing Mecca there in Arabia. So it's a very Arabic sense of faith, even though something like only 20%, 25% of Muslims are actually Arab. You know, the most populous Muslim country is Indonesia. So, yeah, we need to be careful we get our terms right. Okay. So, I don't know, at what point did uh, Islam become... I don't know, kind of rigid or fixed in place, or is it not? Is it just because I'm an outsider that it seems like that to me? But it kind of seems like that. 
Yeah, that's a good question. And I would say that there is a there is quite a fair degree of, of rigidness. I would say that really begins happening sort of two, three hundred years into the into the era of Islam. So Muhammad dies in 632 AD. Then shortly after that, you have the Arab conquests as Islam expands out of Arabia, you know, North Africa, Europe, round into Asia, becomes this great empire. I would say it's interesting. People always associate the word empire with us Brits because we had an empire. But actually, the Muslim empire was was huge. Absolutely huge empire that lasted right up really until the beginning of the 20th century. And then as the Muslim empire expands and there's sort of power and influence and, and money comes into play, then what happens is you get this sort of clerical class emerge and this attempt to really lock down the questions and to lock down what is acceptable in terms of the range of beliefs. And so I would say really it's sort of the sort of 900s and, and just beyond that things begin getting really, really rigid. Today, I would say, yeah, I mean, Islam is diverse. Some scholars would say that rather than talk about Islam, we should talk about Islams. But certainly mainstream Sunni Islam is still a pretty rigid entity. You know, if you were to go to the majority of Muslim majority countries and start perhaps publicly criticizing, you know, the Quran or asking quite awkward questions about Muhammad, you know, you will still get pushback. And we're reminded, I think we forget that sometimes. You know, we got that wake-up call, didn't we, when uh, Salman Rushdie was attacked the other the other month. I think people had assumed that was all over, but no, it wasn't by a long way. And still today, if you're a you know if you're a if you are somebody who wants to ask questions, things are interesting. I mean, look at Iran right now. I mean, Iran is just fascinating. What's going on? Oh, I don't have much insight. What are you seeing from your perspective that's going on there? Well, I don't know how much this made the news in, in on the US side, but to go, you've got this big sort of almost student rising now. It started with women protesting. It started with, I think if I remember what, the, the, what sparked it off, there was, a, there was a young female student, I believe, who was a, arrested by the morality police in Iran for not wearing a hijab. And then this huge protest started with women, you know, removing their hijabs, cutting their hair short. Iranian TV got hacked the other day. You know, the Supreme Leader was making a we're making a speech and, you know, students managed to hack it and put some pro freedom messages there onto national TV. And now it's spread beyond just women and it's gone into students as well. So we shall see. This has happened. This has happened before. There's been revolution and counter revolution. But yeah, right now it's uh, a lot of the younger generation in Iran are saying they've had enough. They've, they've had enough of the mullahs and the ayatollahs kind of clamping everything down and, uh, and they want some freedom. So watch this space. Yeah, it seems like, uh, I guess, Islam has become incredibly rigid and I guess other religions have become much more permissive. You know, I guess it seems like Judaism, uh, Christianity, etc. Like, why do you think there's those two different dynamics? Well, I think, you know, obviously, you know, speaking as a Christian, Christianity has gone through phases where I think there was an attempt to control things from the center. But that's really been the mi- minority. One reason I think for, for that, I can't speak for Judaism, but for Christianity was very early on, Christianity spread like wildfire, it went, it went all over, it went globally pretty quickly. I mean, we have, you know, the oldest continuous uh, Christian community is in India. It's the, the, there's, a, there's, a, there's a group of Christians called the Mar Thoma Christians who can trace their ancestry back to Thomas, to Doubting Thomas, because he went, he went east in the years after Jesus. Very quickly, Christianity gets to North Africa and to Europe. And now you know, it's such a diverse faith you know, globally, I think what happened very early on was Christians figured out, actually, it's okay to to be, you know, to be Chinese, to be African, to be European, and to be Christian. Yes, you hold on to the things that you believe that are true, Jesus's identity, resurrection, so on and so forth. But some of the outward, the outward trappings, they might look different if you are a Christian in one part of the world and from another. Islam sort of never went that route. 
So I remember it's fascinating. You go to, you know, you go to North Africa and the Muslims there, you know, are not that indistinguishable from the Muslims, say, in Saudi Arabia. If you're a Moroccan Muslim, you're expected to pray in Arabic. You know, Muslims never really translated their, their Quran. That eventually happened through pressure from outside. Christians were translating the Bible, you know, within within the first generation. And so I think that's one of the things that happened, that early, that early flexibility, that early diversity that sort of islam never went through that in quite the same way first and then very quickly the other thing that happened was islam combined religion and politics very early on you know we take for granted as those of us who are christians or you know lived in the christian in the christian part of the world that church state separation has generally been there more or less from the from the start and obviously countries like mine like yours you know we pride ourselves and we've separated religion and politics islam combined religion and politics right from the start you know muhammad was a political leader as much as he was a religious leader in a way that jesus never was not even remotely jesus did not do politics muhammad did politics he was a political leader and of course when you combine religion and politics that means it's very easy for the religious class you know, to want to le- grab hold of the leaves of power and hang on to them. I think that's been a problem through Islam from the beginning. Yeah, did, uh, did Islam spread a lot more slowly and in a more localized way than Christianity? It's held together, I don't know, uh, more strictly? Or what do you think is the reason why it's less permissive and less different than other religions? Well, I think a couple of things. Firstly, I would say Christianity in the first 300 years or so, certainly up until the time of Constantine in the 300s, when when it becomes the state religion of the Roman Empire at that point, Christianity spreads organically. You know, it goes from being, I think, sort of not 1% of the Roman Empire to being 53 point something percent in the in 300 years. But it spreads largely, you know, through through the trade routes. It's, it comes up from below. It's, you know, women and slaves are some of the first to convert because Christianity was a religion that was not a religion of the, the elite. And it's interesting, if you look at some of the early pagan critiques of Christianity, that's what they attack it for. They say, oh, this is a slave religion. This is a religion of, you know, slaves and women and, and children. Now, eventually it gets into the higher classes, but it takes a while to get there. Islam, on the other hand, is interesting. So the first uh, first few years from Muhammad's, the first 12 years of Muhammad's prophetic career from 610 to 622, you know, they're a minority there. He's in Mecca and Islam is a smaller minority. But then in 622, when Muhammad gets chased out of Mecca and migrates um, 200 miles north to Medina and gets into political power, from that point on, Islam was always a religion, you know, not only, but obviously it was a religion of the powerful. It's the ruling classes and the military classes who had it. And I think that brought a certain rigidity to it as well and then of course when you have a great empire and islam quite quickly got an empire because it expanded militarily and when it went into that military phase after a very early after muhammad it expanded quite rapidly you know when you're doing command and control across the great empire you tend to rule fairly strictly so you could argue yes islam did it but then to be fair you could say the romans did it alexander the great did it because you got to control right so i think that's almost in my mind where the controlling piece Again, you can't allow people to start, you know, playing around with things because you need that conformity or the whole thing's going to fracture. Yeah, all those reasons make sense. But do you think there's other reasons why it's that way or like, you know, culturally, why has it become and stayed so rigid when other faiths haven't? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a good question. I think I think the other thing is it's built in. I would also say, Richard, it's built into the text. I mean, if you read the Quran through, I mentioned oral formulae you know at the top of the interview these these short repeated building blocks used in the quran again and again and again 
to go, you know, one of the most commonly, one of the most frequently used uh, phrases in the Quran is that you, sh- you must obey Allah and obey the messenger, messenger being, being Muhammad. So this is drummed in again and again and again. You must obey, you must obey, you must obey. It's obedience by which you earn your way to salvation. I mean, it's a, it's a bit of a cliche, but like all cliche, cliches are usually there because they're helpful for a reason. And to say that Islam is a kind of works-based religion is not a bad cliche. In Islam, um, you know, the way that you climb your soul way upwards to paradise is you obey, you keep the commandments, you do what you're told, you do obey the messenger, you do obey Allah. And if you do that, then you can enough kind of merit points that you may on the day of judgment, you know, make it to paradise. Christianity is a whole different framework uh, right from the, the word go. The idea that at the heart of the Christian faith is actually this idea that you can have a relationship uh, with God if you put your trust in Christ and, and have your sins forgiven and you're reconciled to your heavenly father. Then there's that relationship with you and God. And yes, out of that will flow some 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 obedience out of that will flow some changes, perhaps in the way you behave. But it's not quite a, a sort of, you know, here are, you know, 600 commandments, you know, keep every single one of them, obey, obey, obey. And if you do enough of that stuff, you'll be all right. So I, I would say it may even plug into the whole, you know, sort of structure theologically there. And one last thought, actually, I mean, this is a big one. The other th- thing you uh, writers I've sort of delved into have pointed out it may also go back to the very concept of God. You see, in Islam, you have a God who is an utterly is utterly monolithic, is utterly indivisibly one. And uh, in Christianity, you have a God who is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there's plurality in God versus on the Islam side, there, there isn't. And it's been pointed out by a few scholars of sort of comparative religion that sort of religions that have that very monolithic view of God do end up becoming quite totalitarian. If they're not, if they're not careful, and it's interesting that Islam does does go that route. There is no division. There is no diversity. There is no flexibility. There is no fluidity. But in Christianity, but yet, but yet there, but yet there is, right? Like the Wahhabists versus, uh, you know, Sunni versus Shia, and it seems like there's a lot of division. Very well, you say that, and it's going. Let's take that for a minute. I mean, obviously, the Wahhabis are about our subset of the Sunnis. They're, that's the form of, of of Islam that largely came out of, of Arabia. Um, and it's been exported around the world on the back of uh, petrodollars. Um, now, Shiites, you mentioned, are interesting. That's not a theological split. That's a political split. So when Muhammad dies in 632 AD, he leaves no male heir. I mean, he's, mar- he's, he's, had, he's married something like 20, 23 different women, but has pre- failed to produce a male heir. For a man who had that many women, he had very little offspring, and he didn't produce them. The key thing is no son was produced. So there's a massive split in the Muslim community. Uh, the, a, a good chunk of them wanted to pick the next leader by effectively by vote, really, of going, let's look at the let's look at the closest circle of those around Muhammad and pick the man we think is the most able to lead us. And that was the group that became the Sunnis. On the other side, a slightly smaller group with the Shiites who thought that the closest thing we had to a male heir was Ali, who was Muhammad's son-in-law. He should he should become the leader of the community. And that that division actually ends up in civil war. There's a civil war in Islam very early on. And uh, Islam Muslims have a long memory. And so today, that hatred between Sunnis and Shiites that often emerges, you know, in, in, in its worst, it led to the Iran-Iraq war. That goes back to that. That's a political split. Get onto theology, and you'll still find Shiites, I think, are pretty much as robust as Sunnis. They just believe a few things about Ali that, uh, that the Sunnis wouldn't wouldn't the, the Shiites claim that the Sunnis have removed some traditions from the Hadith, the traditions that about what Muhammad said and did that were very, very favourable about Ali. 
and the, and the Sunnis claim the Shiites have added them. Um, the weirdest group, if you want flexibility there, there is flexibility, would be the Sufis. And that's the mystical end of Islam. Tiny minority, often quite persecuted by the other mainstream branches of Islam. But that's the, there is this smallest group of Muslims who actually want more intimacy with God. They want more flexibility, want more spirituality. And that's, that's, Sufism is fascinating, the more mystical end of Islam. It's fractions of hundreds of different little sects, but they're fascinating people to talk to. So how is Sufism different? What are some of the big ideas that make it different? Yeah, mainly it's experiential. Mainly I think that grew out of this desire not to just, you know, read about God or follow commands that God has given, to actually experience God in some ways. And some of the language that early Sufi writers used, you know, got them into all kinds of trouble because they talked about, I mean, you can find early Sufi writers who almost go so far as saying that, you know, almost ending up in pantheism, that everything is God. Uh, including us as human beings. So, of course, we can connect to the divine because we're part of the divine. You can imagine how that kind of language would have gotten into trouble with their with their Sunni and, and Shiite fellows. But, yeah, really, it's that mystical, experiential branch. Interestingly, Su- Sufis are by far the minority. They're about 5% of Muslims worldwide. However, the majority of Westerners who convert to Islam often will convert into Sufism. Uh, because they, because it, it it's very Western. It feel it ta- it taps into the same kind of sort of you know appeals the same kind of personality type who perhaps is drawn to a bit of Buddhism, a bit of Hinduism, a bit of yoga. You know, Sufism can be very sort of touchy feely, very ex- experiential, very whatever you want to make it. But on the world stage, tiny minority. So how has this affected your uh, original faith studying Islam for so long? Well, the interesting thing is what it happened. What for me, what happened, Richard? Early on. I had some wobbles. I mean, when I first encountered Muslims, they were very confident, very loud, uh, very brash. I went to a place called Speaker's Corner in London, which is a great sort of sort of it's the sort of almost the free speech capital of the world. And it's part of one of our, one of our parks in London where you can stand on a ladder and talk about anything. And so people debate religion, politics, sport, it gets huge crowds, especially on a summer's day. And uh, I sort of um, I sort of schlepped up there to you know, sort of just sort of try my hand at sort of speak, street preaching, found Muslims there who were ready to heckle me, found they had all kinds of questions, because a lot of them were quite practiced in taking Christians on. I had nothing. I remember getting down from the ladder that first day thinking, gosh, I mean, these guys seem to have it all together and I've got nothing. But, you know, but then I, I began thinking, well, I need to do some reading, right? I know, I know how to approach it. I need to look into some of the questions they're asking. And then I was, then I sort of, the wobble recovered. And then I would say studying Islam has strengthened my faith, because when I compare the evidential base for Christianity to the evidential base for, for Islam, it's massive, massive differences. I mean, one of the one of the most obvious kind of ones is the is when you look at the story of the you know the biography of the founder. Um, you know, when it comes to Jesus, we are incredibly blessed in New Testament studies because of the short time gap between the life of Jesus and the Gospels being written written down within a lifetime of the eyewitnesses there's been great work done on the on the the fact that on the evidence for the gospel narratives being broadly eyewitness testimony when we turn up coming to the side of the quran on the other hand we have a sort of 150 to 200 year time gap between muhammad and the earliest sources um in you te- in, in the other thing we have in new testament studies we have a mass amount of detail on the culture of jesus's day because we have you know jewish historians roman historians there's archaeology we have so much good stuff to paint in the background we don't have that for islamic studies for a whole number of reasons so we often say in islamic studies i think we sort of would love to have the riches that our colleagues in new testament studies have when it comes to the, the history of the founder 
So it's things like that and many other things can be much gave me give me confidence. So yeah, I would say I'm in a strange position that studying Islam has made me more confident as a Christian. Are you going to go on to uh, study other religions, or is this enough? Is this a lifetime work? <laughs> well, yeah, there's not, there's possibly not enough time in the world. I turned uh, I turned fifty two days ago, so you know the, the brain slows down when you're over that particular hurdle. Probably not. I mean, I think if I was going to study anything, Richard, the one I'd love to dig a bit into will be Buddhism, just because I come across quite a lot of Buddhists. Um, in fact, I think I read some stats somewhere that for every Westerner who converts to Islam, something like 15 convert to some form of Buddhism. I remember I'm a mountaineer and I remember going to try, I remember going trekking and climbing in the, in the Himalayas in Tibet, you know, 10, 10, 15 years ago and, uh, you know, encountering lots of sort of Tibetan Buddhism and finding that fascinating. Um, and I'm just someone who always likes to, you know, when I come across a question, I like to sort of open it up and explore it. So if I had the time, Probably Buddhism, but I suspect not. I suspect what I'll continue to do is continue working on uh, on Islamic stuff and reading widely. I mean, I like to I like to know enough that if I encounter somebody in a different faith tradition, I can have an intelligent conversation. Um, but no, I did joke once to my wife I want to do a second PhD, and um, and 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 that that conversation ended very quickly. But so I haven't understood this. I haven't looked into Islam at all. But what is Mecca and what is Hajj? Yes, yeah, so that's a great question. So, so Mecca is the place, uh, the, the the town in uh, in Arabia, about halfway down the Arabian Peninsula, where traditionally Islam began. And so, Muhammad, according to tradition, and I, this this ties into the time gap thing that I mentioned a moment ago, of going always be very careful in Islamic studies. We start rattling this stuff off, but actually, we're just quoting sources that are you know almost two centuries after the events. But taking those as a given for a moment, Muhammad, according to Islamic tradition was a, a member of the Quraysh tribe and they were the tribe they were one of the tribes there in 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 Mecca and so that's where that's where Islam began and uh Muhammad begins preaching his new faith in 610 AD or thereabouts um gets chased out of the town persecution arises largely because um you know according to islamic uh, sources largely because it, it, uh, Mecca was a polytheistic pilgrimage center that cube-shaped building that Muslims pray towards today, the Kaaba, predates Islam. It was a pagan shrine with, according to tradition, 360 idols in it. You know, Muhammad comes along, preaches very, uh, very rigid monotheism, uh, causes all kinds of, you know, uproar, gets chased out of Mecca, heads 200 miles up north to Medina, and then over the next 10 years has lots of clashes with with Mecca, culminating in his conquering his home city in 630 AD. And then as Islam spreads, what happens, of course, Mecca, because it's where all the action began, remains the center of, uh, of, the, of the faith. And Muhammad's also said that he had a revelation telling people that when they pray, they need to pray towards Mecca. So that's Mecca. And I say just traditionally, that's where things began. There is increasing critical scholarship beginning to ask questions about whether Mecca was actually where Islam began. This is a whole fascinating area that we're just beginning to scrape the surface of. The reason this is a there's a bit of mystery here is Mecca doesn't turn up on ancient maps until way too late. It's uh, we we have there's there's uh, there's maps of the Arabian Peninsula from around the time of Islam. Mecca is not really mentioned. The early the Islamic sources claim that Mecca was significant because it was on the trade routes that ran up and down the Arabian Peninsula. Or we know where those trade routes ran. They went nowhere near Mecca. And then furthermore, when you read the early the earliest Islamic historiographies written by Muslims, the descriptions of Mecca just don't don't fit. They talk about Mecca being a uh, the holy city, the, the Mecca being a town with uh, you know agriculture and vineyards and a river flowing through it and all this stuff. None of that has ever 
happened at, at Mecca. Mecca is a dry, arid place in the middle of the desert. So some scholars are beginning to wonder whether Islam began elsewhere. We're just at the early stages of that stuff. That's fascinating. And your other question was Hajj. Hajj is, uh, if you're a good, faithful Muslim, uh, you will try and go on pilgrimage to Mecca once uh, in your lifetime. So that's something many Muslims today take seriously. Interesting, Hajj predates Islam. It was a it was a tradition uh, that we know existed uh, among the Bedouin Arabs before Islam came along. The Quran actually makes that relatively clear. So it was interesting that the pre-Islamic pagan Arabs were going to Mecca, some kind of religious pilgrimage once a year. And it looks like, I talked about Muhammad fishing from sort of tradition. It looks like Muhammad picked up that idea and went, great, you're all familiar with pilgrimage. Let's now, you know, bring pilgrimage into Islam and Islamicize it. So that's Mecca and Hajj. Do you think the, um, you know, the Arab Islamists are, I don't know, more hardcore? Are they, do they look down upon the, the non-Arab Muslims or Islamists? Mm. Oh, gosh, there's a there's a question. Yeah, that does go on a little bit. Um, there are some uneasy tensions, I think, within the House of Islam. I mean, one of the ones is interesting is I mentioned the Iranian stuff that's going on right now. There's always been a bit of a tension I think between between Iranians and and Arabs when it comes to to Islam. This, by the way, is one of the reasons geopolitically why you know there's always you know Iran is sometimes called, often causing problems on the world stage. What's often not appreciated by Europeans and Americans is when you know when Iran starts saber rattling rattling and causing trouble, they're not really wanting to cause trouble for the West. They're playing to the Muslim world. They're playing the game of going. Look, the Saudis are just, you know, they're just useless. They're not giving the West any trouble. Who's the one who's standing up to the West? Who's the one who the Americans are afraid of? The Europeans are nervous about? It's we Iranians. We are really, you know, should be the top dog, not the um, not the Saudis. Um, so that, that that that's interesting. And then the other thing that's interesting is when you look at those leaving Islam, the biggest people group uh, who are leaving Islam are Iranians. Now, the fastest growing church in the world is the, is the Iranian church. There's over a million Iranian Christians. And I've talked to loads of that, those folks. And for, for some of them, that tension with the Arabs lies behind it. I remember one of the first time an Iranian friend said to me when I said to him, well, why, you know, why did you leave Islam? Why did you become a Christian? He went, well, I started studying my history. And he said, I discovered we Iranians, we, had, we were a proud civilization. You know, we had literature, we had architecture, we had poetry, we had music. We were an amazing culture. And then these Arabs came over the desert on camels and, you know, wiped out our civilization and Islamicized everything. And he said, when I discovered that, that actually my culture predates Islam. He said, that was it. I had enough. It was off. And it was just a case of, he said, I played with Marxism for a bit. That didn't work. And then he said, I became a Christian. Um, so, yes, there are tensions, Richard, by a lot, but very much so. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Andy, I'm just about out of time um what's the best place for people to find out more about your work where can they go yeah the best place to, to find my work is if they just google me andy bannister that's by far the easiest you'll find me on um, on social media and my website and stuff and uh if you want to find uh but if you uh if you if you do want to just go direct the best place to find me is andy bannister and that's two ends in bannister andy bannister.net and uh, that will find that will take them to my website, and through there they can find the other stuff I do and the books I've written and bits and pieces. So yeah, Google Andy Bannister or go to andybannister.net. Well, very good, Andy. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. I've really enjoyed it, Richard. Thanks for a great conversation. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.
You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.